There's an African proverb that says, a village without the elderly is like a well without water. In Italy, particularly Sardinia and other Mediterranean countries, the older generation are far more venerated than here in Australia and the United States. Asian countries believe that older citizens have a great deal to offer and respect them accordingly. In China, a law was passed in 2013 that actually punishes adult children who don't visit their elderly parents. Research conducted in 2001 across mainland Japan shows that more than half the population of the Japanese people over the age of 60 lived with their children, a figure that's three to ten times greater than that found in Western countries. Quoting a 2011 article in the International Journal of Aging and Human Development, talking about Japan, quote, old age is thus understood as a socially valuable part of life. Even a time of spring or rebirth after a busy period of working and raising children, unquote. In fact, older people are seen in Japanese culture as sen-nin, which means wise sage. In Africa, elders are served first at mealtimes and often act as judges. In Australian indigenous societies, elders hold a great deal of power and are believed to have demonstrated a deep level of wisdom and are responsible to pass down their culture and wisdom to the young. In North America and Native American culture, elders are considered the wisdom keepers. Perhaps David Suzuki said it best when he said, quote, elders are a very special group in society. We've got something no other group in society has. We have lived an entire life. We have made mistakes. We have celebrated successes. We've suffered under failures. We've learned a hell of a lot in a lifetime. Now we've got something to troll through and look for those nuggets of information to pass on to the coming generation. Unquote. In the West, we tend to think of our elders, well, they're nice, but they can't have children. They can't work. They're just not productive. But if we go back to Dr. Suzuki, I think we should consider his point when he says, quote, I believe elders with the power of youth and youth with the power and the knowledge of elders will be an unstoppable force, unquote. With all that in mind, our guest today is Bill Lowther. And now, Bill, I, I stumbled upon your book uh, in, in, in the National Library of Australia's website called Step Beyond Courage. And it's got two forewords in it, one that's written from the mayor of Kangaroo Island and one that is uh, written by the only Australian person awarded uh, the Victoria Cross in the Vietnam conflict. And you were decorated as a civilian uh, for bravery by the federal government. And the only reason I'm bringing up these two forwards is because I just don't want the audience, once they hear some of the things you're going to talk about today, this whole Forrest Gumpian story that you've got, you know, to think we're telling tall tales. So let's just start out like real quick near the beginning. And now you, you were um, you were from Portsmouth, England, right? That's right. And um, you know that's that's a huge naval base and uh, shipyards. I mean, in fact, two thirds of the UK Navy is still based there. 
and you were there during World War II as a child. You were like six to nine years old, yes. and it was bombed 67 times? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> I mean, well, <clears throat> hearing the sirens going off, and that was telling you that the aircraft would come in, and the enemy were going to bomb us. We had a very interesting lifestyle at that time because my mother was a midwife at home and all the soldiers, sailors and airmen that were based there, the women, most of the women had lost their husbands. They'd gone, uh, they were gone overseas and there was no one there. And the Navy men had a story that they were taught that they have a woman in every port, wherever they go. And uh, so a lot of women, <laughs> thank you, a lot of women were finding their new friends and having babies. My mother being a midwife at home, that means she would go to a lady's house from conception to birth was 280 days and she would say to me, Billy... June is having a baby and she's on her 279th day. In the next 24 hours, you'll hear her cry twice. She's having a contraction. And you will then run and tell me she's having a baby. And I would go and stay. When I heard them cry twice, I'd go out the door. Very often, with searchlights in the sky, red tracer bullets going up from the ACAC guns in the street, to direct it onto the aeroplanes that were bombing us and I'd run in and say, hey mum, she's having a baby. I'd come back at six years old and put the kettle on and clean up after the birth, putting the umbilical cord in the garden and, and burying it. She was also a florist, so I was making wreaths and crosses for dead people that were being killed with the bombing. And the street we lived in, when the bombs went off at the back of the houses, it blew the front doors into the street. And um, I got pictures of all of this in the old, <laughs> going back to that time. The, <clears throat> the, the people that wrote the book and put the book out, England in the Blitz or Portsmouth in the Blitz, then uh, they gave me permission to use whatever I wanted to associate with my book. So, I'm making wreaths and crosses for dead people and helping people deliver babies, or my mother delivering the babies. And my father, six years old, I am six years old, turned and said, I've had enough of this. And he'd got another woman in another port and he disappeared and I never had a man in my life, officially. So... It was quite incredible. So uh, just uh, real quick, I mean, I, I, and I don't want to interrupt you because you've got so, much, so many great things to say, but so you're, you're six years old yeah. and uh, six to nine because uh, the, yeah. the actually got bombed over a long period of time. So and you're running through the streets while bombs are literally going off. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. That was in different parts, but fortunately okay. – 
I, they didn't get me. <laughs> and you're saying, oh, ma, this lady's having a baby, and then you run back, and then you clean up all the afterbirth and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what do you say to young people now when they say it's too far to walk to school? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, how does that go over to you? <laughs> well, I came up with a saying, which I learned very, very early in my days, that whatever you seriously seek, will seriously seek you. So stand on your own two feet and go and find out what you need to know and how it all comes together. And with that, I was making wreaths and crosses and helping people with with bombed houses and everything. But, <clears throat> you know, one day the police officer came round to me and he said, Billy, if you see any of these bombs... I've got to know about it. And I said, why is he talking to me like that? It was so authoritative. And I said, yeah, okay. He said, they break up into little pieces of metal called shrapnel and kill people. And I've got to know about it if there's any about. A few weeks later, I'm going to school with the harbour on the left, walking along the bank, the ditch at the bottom the field going across to the air, air, the air balloons that they blew up with the gas there to put up in the air. And I saw six of these bombs stuck softly in the ground before the balloon. And I thought, that's them bombs he was on about. So <laughs> I went to school, Wicker Farm School, outside of Porchester, Portsmouth. And on the way home, I looked across and saw these bombs again and thought, hmm, he wants to know about them. So I climbed down the bank, jumped over the ditch, went over to the last bomb in the row. They were separated about two foot apart. And I grabbed the fins and I wiggled it out the ground. I went round to his house, kicked his door, and he came to the door and I said, is this them bombs you were looking for? <laughs> He couldn't speak. Billy, Billy, don't move. Don't move. I'll get a bucket of water. Oh, don't move, Billy, don't move. And he disappeared and came back with a bucket of water, still screaming out, don't, don't move, don't move. And he put the bucket of water down, took the bomb off me very gently, put it in the bucket of water, and then clouded me straight round the ear, took me home, and they put me to bed with no supper. <laughs> so your mom wasn't impressed with you picking up no unexploded ordnance and, and sharing it with the police? No, but, they, <laughs> but there was a lot more to this, actually. <laughs> One of the best things that ever happened was the Germans come in to get a ship, and we were four houses, mm-hmm. six houses down from mm-hmm. the beach, and for the fourth house... The plane came in to drop a torpedo to get one of the ships in the harbour. Mm-hmm. And he dropped the bomb, the torpedo. Mm-hmm. They're huge. Mm-hmm. He dropped it and it's stuck in the front garden, four houses down from where I lived, with the propeller up by the, by the roof. Mm. And um, he was out the front blowing his whistle. Evacuate, evacuate. And I went out to him and I said, what what's the matter? And he said, There's a torpedo in Mr French's garden <laughs> And I said Really? Uh. What's a torpedo? Because I knew the incendiary bomb, I knew the bus I knew all the different bombs, but I didn't know about torpedoes with the ships. <laughs> 
And he said, it's a big bone. Mm. I thought, goodness, I've got to see that. So I ran indoors, ran through to my bedroom window, jumped out the bedroom window by the Anderson Aeroshelter, shelter, mm. ran down to the barrage balloons at the back by the hedge, climbed under the hedge and went down to Mr. French's garden, climbed into his place, commando crawled to the front house where the box hedges were, mm -hmm. and I laid underneath there looking at this torpedo stuck up in the air. Mm. It had a, a cross on it. It didn't have a swastika. It was gold, brass. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. thought it was gold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I looked at it and thought, wow. It's a good job I couldn't carry it. Mm. Did you get a weapon for that one too, or your ma never found out? No, he. I went back to him and he said, Billy, you've got to evacuate to your nearest parent on the birth certificate. Okay. Now, my father's grandmother, and this is the only time this happened, uh -huh. she lived in Brighton, 40 miles away. Oh, so you were part of that evacuation. So they okay. took me. They took well, me. Let's, let's talk about that and a few other things right after we take a quick break because there's so much to get to about you being in, the, uh, you know, yeah. stationed in during the two <laughs> Arab, Arab wars and, and, you know, the stuff that you've done with the Aboriginal community. So we're going to be right back in just a little bit with Bill Lothar. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back. With, we're back with Bill Lowther. And uh, Bill, you were you were a lemonade salesman and pretty good at it. But then you were posted to the uh, King Roy, uh, Royal Rifle Brigade, right? The King's Royal Rifles. And, and that was it. And you were in Libya in 1957. Yep. So. That was right after the second Arab-Israeli War. Yep. So that would have been a pretty tense time to be an Englishman in that part of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Well, um, yeah, that was quite interesting to arrive there. Uh, I was put in charge of an officer's mess, and... Um, I was, I was a marksman in the King's Royal Rifles. Uh, the King's Royal Rifles is the fastest foot-moving regiment in the world. And um, <coughs> here we are in a place called Derna, 150 miles from Tobruk. And I took over an officer's mess for the RAOC, the Royal Army Ordnance School. And um, it was very interesting. I was teaching Arabs... Uh, being servants or serving at the table, uh, the gardening and things. I was t teaching the drinks and everything for the bar. I was <laughs> organising trips for the officers to go out, shooting their guns for fresh food, uh, rabbits, birds and things that we went out to get. Um, and we got involved in quite a lot of things there. The headmaster for the school came to me and said, would I teach the Arabs, um, the scouts for the Arabs, and also the Germans that were there, because this is after the war, the, the Second World War. There was still a lot of Germans in Tobruk after? Yeah. Because that, that, was, that was a major, that was a turning point. Yeah, they enjoyed, they 
em, were employed by the British government, and this is a, quite a few years after the mm-hmm. war. And um, they <coughs> they rode motorbikes, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> uh, the officer in charge of all of the um, the the colonel came to me, Colonel Hope, and said, <coughs> "Right from in Lothian, my clerk tells me you're a florist." And I thought, yeah, when I was a six-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And he said, three Germans working for us were riding to Benghazi and there were sheep both sides of the road and they were going 100 k's an hour. And as they got there, the sheep ran on the road and they crashed into the three bikies and they all died. You will make wreaths and crosses for them. And I thought, yeah, okay. But I'm in North Africa by the Sahara Desert. Where would there be flowers and wreaths and ivy on the walls? There wasn't any. And he said, that's my chauffeur, whatever you need. So I said, oh, okay. So I said to the chauffeur, take me to BHP. And the (laughs) chauffeur said, yep. We went to BHP. I said, get the director here to see me. He came down and said, how can I help? I said, what flowers are you experimenting with? What do you mean, what flowers are we experimenting? How do you know that? I said, because 10 years ago in Benghazi, you were drilling for oil and you found oil and you sprayed the surface of the sand with oil and the trees that took 10 years to grow with the moisture now coming up to the oil and stopped it there, they grew the orange trees fruitful in two years. Sounds what? like we should have sent you to Wuhan to figure out what was going on there. Yeah. <laughs> you could have put that together. So, anyway, he, go ahead. Sorry. It was quite interesting because I went from there with the flowers that they had, mm-hmm. jasmine and hydra, not hydrangea. Um, anyway, they had two flowers there, mm-hmm. uh, red and white ones, and I said to the driver, take me back to the officer's mess. We got back there. I called the servant boy and I said, come here. Get up that tree and get me four of those long branches off of the the big mm-hmm. trees with the leaves. All He got up and got me four branches down that completely covered the coffins and we laid it out for three coffins with hydrangeas mm-hmm. and jasmine and they loved it. And it just showed that we showed respect to the people, not holding a disrespect for them in the war. Mm. And they were thrilled to bits. Mm. So three, <laughs> three coffins, three, three beautiful sets of flowers, and they loved every bit of it. Great. Well, so you, uh, you left there. What, what made you leave uh, Libya? Well, you come to your end of your service. Okay. And then you went back to you went to the UK? I went back to the UK and, and became a refrigerator no, I was working in a lemonade factory where they made the largest mixed variety of soft drinks in the world. And then you met the girl of your dreams? Yes. Okay, and you got married in nineteen sixty three. Yes. And you had three kids. Yeah. And then one of them had a vitamin D deficiency? Yeah. So what did you decide to do then? <coughs> well, I wanted to find another country the same distance from the equator that we were in Libya, which is above the equator. Mm-hmm. And we went round with a 
with the, the, the guy, the, and we measured it, but there was nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Then I turned it around, and it went down, and it came through South Australia. Mm-hmm. So this is how we came to South Australia. All right. Great. But, so, so to get your daughter better sun for vitamin D. But the, we went back to Libya mm-hmm. because they wanted a refrigeration mechanic in Tobruk where the big battle took place. Mm. And I went back there and I opened a fishing club training 90 children, 150 adults, 31 divers diving, going under the sea. And the Smithsonian Museum got in touch with me and said, we need your help. And I said, what's the matter? And they said, the River Nile has been turned into the desert by Gamal Abdel Nasser. Mm-hmm. Men are going across building an, the Aswan Dam. They're going across without getting their feet wet, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. They lost 18,000 tonnes of sardines every year. Mm-hmm. They carved up the idols of Abu Simbel and Ramesses II mm-hmm. and moved them up above the dam that they had built. Right. And three million Jews were going to be wiped out by 30 million Muslims. And the Six-Day War, the Arabs came to me and said, if we lose this war, Mr. Bill... The streets of this city will run with your blood, your wife and your children. Mm. I said, why would you do that to me when I've helped you? Because you're not a a Muslim, you're an infidel. We have the right to kill you. We can only lose this war if England and America help them beat us. And they lost in six single days. Mm. So you were there, you were in in, uh, the Middle East, uh, Libya, during the Six-Day War, which of course Israel cleaned the Arab world's clock. I, I think they got like 15 times the land that Israel had before. So we're going to talk about how you got through that. I'd also like to talk about your whole Clive Cussler, James Cameron experience of finding a thousand-year-old sh- shipwreck, you know, <laughs> since you alluded to the diving. And well, let's talk a little bit about some of the work you've done with the Aboriginal community as well. So we'll be right back in just a couple minutes with Bill Lauthauer. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with Bill Lauthauer. And, Bill, I just realized that I've done the listeners and you a great disservice, okay? I need you to tell us about your book and where you can get it real quick because we're just covering – a few, and I stress a few of the Forrest Gumpian things that have happened in your life. <laughs> so wh- what's the name of your book again, please? The name of my book is Step Beyond Courage, and my wife's book is Novice in the Outback. Okay, and they can buy yours on Amazon? As far as I know. Yeah, yeah, it's on Amazon. And it's Bill Lauthauer. L-O-W-T-H-E-R, for those that are listening. Bill Lothar. Lothar, sorry. I, I just – well, well, the way I say it, it's Lothar. <laughs> you say a tomato. I say – you say tomato. I say tomato. Okay? But anyway, that's, uh, that's me trying to dig myself out of trouble there. So, um, Bill, can we go – okay, so tell us about how – what happened after the – you know, after uh, the Arab world – got their clock cleaned in the 
Six Day War in 1967. How did you get out of that? <clears throat> well, it was quite interesting. Julian and I were on our veranda having a meal, and the curfew was in at six o'clock. Nobody was allowed out. Blue shirt Gaddafis were going around killing a lot of people out after six o'clock. And <clears throat> as we were sitting on our veranda cooking our dinner with the Bondes next door to us, a, a sergeant major came home across the road from us and the kids had busted his sewer pipe and they had filled up the sewer pipe with sand and little rocks and the sewers was run up and back in the house. He came home at just after six and came back out quarter past and he came round to where the pipe was broken underneath us and I said to him, John, get back indoors. If they see you, they'll shoot you. And he said, those little sods, they busted the pipe and put the bricks in there. And I, I said, get back. And a Land Rover pulled round the corner. Five blue shirts jumped out and a driver with a revolver, the five blue shirts with machine guns, and they semicircled him just underneath us. And Gillian looked down at him and I was just amazed. And they... <coughs> He tried to tell them, because he didn't speak Arabic, he tried to tell them what the kids had done. So he was lifting his leg, pointing his backside, pointing over to the broken pipe and pulling his, his private and lifting his leg. And, <laughs> and my wife started laughing. She cracked up laughing and I started laughing with her. And they turned the guns off of him onto us, down onto him. They did it several times. And then they ran forward, grabbed hold of him and threw him into his house. I said, Jill, you just saved his life. She said, Bill, you help me. So we were, <laughs> this was coming to the end of my third year term, third year of being there. Mm. So uh, we got on a plane and we flew back to England. And then we measured from, that's when we measured the distance from the equator. We measured the distance from the equator to find the sunshine for my daughter. And when we turned this around, it went through South Australia. Mm -hmm. And that's how we came to South Australia, just for the benefit of the sunshine for vitamin D for my daughter, Deborah. Now, is that when... So that was after you got back... You, you got here in 1967... 1969. 1969, sorry. And is that when you were working? Because you ended up working on some atomic, uh, uh, some atomic bombs at one point. Am I right with that, about that? Yeah. Because uh, they needed a refrigeration guy. I mean, did you, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but how far did you go in your education? I didn't get very good education at all. So you stopped Practi at what year? Practical. Yeah, yeah, Practical. obviously. But what, what year? What year did you finish? Well, I was only uh, a young boy. So when when I finished in education, so twelve, thirteen. Yeah, we were being we were being bombed, uh -huh. missing school, uh -huh. and um, just doing the best we could with everything that we had. So, but 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 the point I'm trying to make is, you ended up working on atomic weapons. Well. Or, uh, Monty Trenary, the, the, the director of the company, came to me and said, Bill, 
We want you to go to Bryce Norton RAF base where they're keeping bombers in the sky with atomic bombs and they want you to check out some of the things that they've got there. So I went there and did that and they were so pleased with it. The <laughs> director of forces workers for the government got in touch with Monty and said, we want Bill Lothar to go to Atomic Energy Research Establishment. <laughs> They've got a problem with their with what they're doing with the atomic bombs and building the atomic radiation. So I went to Harwell, and when I got there, I walked in the door, and there were professors and mechanics, electricians, everything. And I walked in, and I said... Uh, What's the problem? And they said, the refrigeration's not working. I said, hey, what do you mean it's not working? They said, we've got two units called a cascade unit inside that big steel bell. And the gas, the, the gauges, everything, telling us what the refrigeration gas is inside, how it's working and all that stuff. Everything's working, but it's not cooling. And I said, hmm, let me have a look. So I went over with a torch, looked through the glass window on this steel dome, this tank, and inside there was one unit on top of the other, one cooling the other, making it much more cold than it normally is. And I looked, there's two gauges, one on the suction line on both units and one on the headgear on both units. And I said to them, what have you done to this tank? And they said... Well, we pressurised it to 700 PSI. I said, that's your problem. And they said, what do you mean, that's the problem? I said, those two gauges, top and bottom, they are manufactured for atmospheric pressure at 14.7 PSI, and you've increased that pressure to 700. That's your mistake. Well, they couldn't get over it. And that was within 10 minutes of being there. That's when they asked me to go out back out to Africa and look after the British troops at Tobruk. <laughs> wow. So, uh, as they say, common sense ain't too common. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, again, the name of your book is? Step Beyond Courage. Okay. And uh, by Bill, L-O-W-T-H-E-R, if you're going to look it up on Amazon. Mm. Uh, it's only like six or seven bucks, so it's it's worth the read. Um mm. And, uh, okay, so let's move to, we're jumping around a bit in your life here, but there's so much that it's uh, impossible to do it chronologically. But you, you ended up finding a shipwreck? Tell yeah, us about uh, that. It wasn't so much a shipwreck, the results of a shipwreck. The results of a shipwreck, okay. Um, in the early days, they were making... Uh, huge amphora wine vases for the pharaohs and the people in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they were sending them across the Mediterranean to uh, to the Arab hierarchy. And um, at Derna, I was teaching snorkeling, diving, fishing, and <coughs> I went out with my dive mate Um we swam out to this island and we were looking and there was a, a big shoal of fish and um, <laughs> he wanted one of these fish. 
So he went down and dived at it, but the barracuda completely surrounded him and he nearly disappeared. And uh, <laughs> I indicated, come on, get out of here. And I was on my way back a different route, and as I came by this this island, there was a, a piece of rock standing up like a, a pinnacle. And in the, about three foot down, there was a vase, an amphora wine vase, um, nearly three feet long, and it was obviously the reef had grown over it and it was stuck in the reef. And I decided that I needed to get that. So <laughs> when we went back to the hometown, Tobruk, I got my mate, my dive buddy, and I said, we're going out to get that vase. And my wife said, before you touch it, I've got to see it. So we, <laughs> we, swam, we went back to Derna. We swam out to where the rock was with the vase in. Julian was absolutely thrilled to bits, my wife, Julian, to see that. And she said, I want to look around while I was deciding how to cut it out of the rock. And she swam around, and as she was swimming around, she got excited and swam back and pulled us over there. <laughs> I went over to where she was looking, and there, deep down in the sand, there was another vase just laid in the sand. And it's a wine amphora, and it's three foot long. And in the old days, they were made amphora. They were... <coughs> They could pour water over it to cool it. They drill a hole in the sand and push the vase in there and keep the cold drink, the drink cold for the pharaohs or whoever it was. And it's called a wine amphora. So I still got one and I like it. And it's a lot of history has gone by it on the wine amphoras in North Africa and the Mediterranean and Egypt. So, yeah, so that was quite interesting. So, did now did a museum look at this stuff? And, yeah. The and how old did they say it was? Ashmolean Museum, 1,500 to 2,000 years old. So between 1,500 and 2,000 yeah. years old. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, you didn't get anything for that. But <laughs> did it end up in a museum or what? what? No, I still got it. <laughs> okay. What? Yeah. So, yeah, we... we we let two. We got three all together, and uh -huh. we we let them two of them go to the museum and stuff in um, in the old days. So you've got you gave two to the museum, and you kept one yourself. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you can you write me in your will? I mean, no, no. Oh, okay, that sucks. <laughs> okay, all right. That's, that's that's a shame. I am a really nice guy, though. Oh I mean, yeah. Don't worry. You'll get something. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. Okay, well, um, <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, that was even better than I thought. Uh, can you uh, now? You you won a, the, uh, the you won this award for bravery. Now your yeah. your book says you rescued how many people and how many different incidents? Oh, there's over seventy people, men, women, and little children. And it was in how many incidents? In over so, like eighteen different 18? incidences. But only one of you you won an actual award for, mm. uh, and that one. 
uh, and that, that made you the vice president of... Um, no, that didn't make me anything. I thought, but, but I thought you were the head of that organization that you yeah, went to I became, I became the president in the end last year, or the year before last, of the National of the Australian Bravery Association. Right. Okay, that's what I, I meant. I was a vice president before that, and I was an ambassador before that, and they've made me an ambassador again because I want to rest. But you got to have uh, some bona fides, like I can't be the president <laughs> or vice president. They'll say, no, sorry, no cowards allowed in our chapter. Well, so. <laughs> um, between John and I, we we took over 14 different communities in the outback of Australia, mm-hmm. And we, one of them, Fregon, <laughs> a lady came. Actually, got, what we're going to do, because this is such yeah. an awesome story, we're going to hear about the one you won the award with and then some of your aboriginal uh, uh, ev- adventures here okay. uh, right after these messages, okay? Okay, go for it. <laughs> All right, awesome. <laughs> You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno. FM. We're back with Bill. So, (laughs) Wild Bill, can you tell us the name of your book yet again? Because I'm just not doing uh, justice to us because there's just not enough time. So your book is? Step Beyond Courage and Jillian's book, Novice in the Outback. All right, and mm-hmm. it's Bill, last name spelled L-O-W-T-H-E-R. Yes. On Amazon mm-hmm. and a bunch of other places. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, you know, you said you've uh, your book you talk about over you and your wife saving over 70 people and I think 18 different incidents. Yep. Let's just focus on the one that you got the uh, the award from, uh, from the, it was, the, was it the federal government or the state government? Oh, federal government. Fed, that's what I thought. Yep. And uh, you know, tell us about that, please. Well, <clears throat> I went down the Coorong, um, and I was taking my son-in-law and my son with him in a twelve-foot dinghy, and I was in a fifteen-foot one with my daughter and her friend, both Sharon and Julie, and we were going down the Coorong. We were going to go past the mouth and then go down to the beach that we played on on the inside of the Kurung. And as we were going, I saw three men in a boat in the, going towards the mouth in the rough. And they had opened, two hundred, I believe, 268 gates, if I was right, of the Kurung to empty the salinity of the great Lake Alexandrina into the sea. And as it was going out, the water had whirlpools in it and the sand dunes were falling down 20, meet, 20 inches every, every 20 minutes. No, a metre every 20 minutes. And I thought, they're in a dangerous position. So I went over and I said, hey, you guys, you're in a dangerous position here. You want to pull your anchor and get near Highmarsh Island? And they said, yeah, mate, we're all right. Don't worry about us. So we carried on down the Kurong and we had a bit of fun and we come back and now the extra gates have been opened and the the river was really running with big whirlpools flooding down past it. I went over again to these guys and I said, listen you guys, three months ago 
Three people in a boat here got washed out to sea and drowned in calm weather. You're in a dangerous position. Get near the beach. Yeah, mate, we're all right. So we pulled up on the beach and my son-in-law said to me, the boat I just bought, Dad, would you give it a run? Tell me what you think. It's okay. So I thought I'd give it a run in 18 inches of water or near the beach. And as I left, the girls were pulling my boat out of the water. I went along the beach and as I was coming back, all my children and friends were waving their arms in the emergency signal. So I pulled over and said, what's the matter? And they said, the men in that boat, they are screaming. They hit a sandbar, their engine jumped off the back of the boat and the boat was being carried out through the mouths. One of the men dived over the side. So I'm in a little 12-foot dinghy, so I rush out, carrying out to them. And as I'm coming up, they scream out to me, Save our mate! And they pointed out to him on the right-hand side of the Murray Mouth, and there was, he's going towards a big wave. And I thought, oh, crap. So I rushed over to him, and as I'm coming up, I shouted out, Don't grab the side of the boat! The boat can fill up with water! And he goes, oh, and he missed. He grabbed the side, some water came in, and he ended up pulling his backside over the bow of the boat, which held it down. I'm very pleased. But we're now coming up on the top of a really huge wave. So I decided to use it as a surfboard, and I rushed in with the wave, crashing up the sandbar uh, onto the sandbar. And as it... As we did, he jumped off the boat and he turned round and pointed to his mates in their boat coming up to the wave and he's screaming, save my mates. They hit the wave, the boat spun over and over, over the top of the wave and disappeared and they disappeared under the wave. I said, you saw what happened to that boat, the same thing will happen to this one. So I... Started up the engine again, now with a cracked transom and a bent propeller. Mm. And I carried on back through the the next part of the, the, the mouth, going to my boat. The girls had put my boat back in the water. They forgot to, got to put the bung in, and I put it in to seal up. <laughs> and we carried on, and we're going back out. And the man that I rescued ran across the sand dunes and waved down a bigger boat going along the inside and it had two engines that had all of the flags and everything and said, hey, <coughs> my mates, they're in, they've just been carried out to sea. And as I'm coming back, I see this man I'd rescued holding the bow of that big boat with two men, officials in there, and I thought, thank God, I was really pleased. And as I came by, I said, you're going out to get them men? Not on your life, it's too dangerous. Mm. And I said, someone's got to go, not us. And I said, So I looked at the two girls in the boat with me, and I went over and looked at the waves, and they're right up to the ceiling of a room. They're huge. And I thought, if I can bury the boat under the water at full speed I might be able to get through to the other side before the boat is turned upside down like we'd just seen looking at it I said to the two girls what I'm going to do is too dangerous to take you with me so as I hit the beach both of you jump out 
my daughter grabbed hold of my hands and said, Dad, if you think I'm leaving you, you've got another thing coming. Julie said, Mr. Bill, you haven't got a life jacket on, and we have, and we're sticking with you. We turned the boat and went over to the wave, and at full speed, we hit the bottom of the wave, and the wave turned us over into an upright position, going straight out of the water, and my son said there was five feet between the end of the engine and the top of the wave when you come out. The boat come back down, not down again. We did that three times and then carried along the Murray Mouth, outside the Murray Mouth, to 93 Mile Beach. And as we came to it, there was the sun had gone asleep, a little bit of sun in the distance on the horizon, and we were looking for some rubbish, the men, the boat, and we saw a little bit of rubbish. And... Going over to it, one man was cuddling a petrol tank, the other man was cuddling the bow of the boat standing upright. And they were bobbling along. <laughs> and I said, don't leave there, we'll pull you in. So we pulled into them and lifted them out of the water. The girls pulled one over the front, I pulled one over the back, called Sea Rescue, and I said, Sea Rescue. We got the men in the boat. They said, we thought you said they're in the ocean. I said, they are. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Oh, you're in the ocean. I said, yeah, and we can't see the Murray Mouse. It's pitch black. They said, a four-wheel drive just arriving on the beach. And they turned him around and put his headlights on. The Murray Mouth is 50 metres to the starboard side of that light. And we came back through there with five people on board. And the police called it a miracle. And the two girls and I were awarded a medal. Well, there's nothing you can add to that. So I just want to thank thank you, Bill, for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, again, his book is called Step Beyond Courage. You can get it on Amazon. I want to thank Mark Aston uh, for his mentorship and patience. And uh, most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. And I was, as I was listening to you, Bill, I was thinking about the great New York Mets baseball coach, Yogi Berra, and one of his many quotable quotes. He once said, it ain't over till it's over. I was thinking about that and realized that Nelson Mandela was released from prison at 72, and four years later, at 76, became president of South Africa and served until the age of 81. Laura Ingalls Wilder was 65 when she wrote her first Little House on the Prairie book and finished her last one at 78. Joseph Campbell was 78 when he came up with the idea for condensed soup. Benjamin Franklin was 81 when he helped write the Constitution of the United States of America. Gladys Burrell had polio as a child and didn't become active until she was in her 40s. She then became a multi-engine aircraft pilot climbed Mount Hood in Oregon, and at 86 ran her first marathon. She did her last marathon at 96. Fao Zhao Singh did his first marathon at 89. And at 100, he finished the Toronto Marathon. George Bernard Shaw was 94 when he wrote an award-winning play. And Grandma Moses was 76 years old when she started painting.
She created 1,500 pieces by her death at 101. Her painting, Sugaring Off, which she did at 99 years of age, sold for 1.36 million U.S. dollars, or around 2 million Australian. Then I thought about Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., and when he said that, quote, many people die with their music still in them, unquote, which reminds me that there are two different kinds of people in the world. There are the kinds of people that say, I'm too old, I can't do it, you're too old, you can't do it either. And then there are the kinds of people that decide they can still make a contribution and perhaps even change the world. The question is, as always, which one are you?